The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. We do pray that we would hide it deeply in our hearts, that we might know you, love you, and follow you all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we're revisiting the final line of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This line truly demonstrates the full breadth of the prayer that we've been considering for so many weeks now. The prayer begins with our Father in heaven, and it ends most literally with the evil one, which is how it should be translated. So this prayer stretches from God to Satan. It stretches from heaven to hell and encompasses everything in between. Everything that we will ever need to pray, as I've told you many times, is encompassed here. But why in this way? In a way that's so low and so dire and even so dark with the words, the evil one. I think in part because that's our world. That is our lives in it. And Jesus seems to be working to wake us up to the full panoply of our lives and the reality that we face here in this world. So you have to ask, are we awake this morning? It's probably something I should ask in about 20 minutes or so here on this rainy Sunday, but are we awake this morning? Are you awake and being honest about our world and your life in it? I've thought a lot about C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, this week. If you don't know this book, it's this imaginative count of a series of letters written from one high-ranking devil who's more experienced in tempting and corrupting humans to a lower-ranking devil, giving him advice. And this is one of the quotes. It says, the humans live in time, but our enemy meaning God, destines them to eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with or separation from him, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. And that quote 
pretty much sums up everything that we've been talking about with the Lord's Prayer and everything that we are to pray and to attend to. So again, are you awake this morning? And are you being honest about your life and everything that is transpiring in it? And maybe the main question that we need to ask this morning is how can we face the inevitable test that this life will present us with without allowing them to become temptations that devour us? So three points this morning, a quick review, number one, an honest assessment, and then three, an essential story. First of all, a quick review. Last week, Brent preached on this line. He did a great job. He told you that the Greek word here that we translate temptation can have two different meanings. It can be translated temptation, but also test. And in some biblical passages, like in James 1, which he focused on, this, this word is used interchangeably with both senses. So a test, he told you, can and does come from God and aims to produce good things, greater maturity and, and wisdom and godliness and to give us life. But temptation comes from evil, and it seeks to only steal, kill, and destroy, as Jesus speaks about in John chapter 10. So opposite goals and, and opposite sources, but, and listen, similar, if not the same circumstances. That's why I printed part of Matthew 4 here for you, where Jesus gets baptized, and then immediately after baptism, what happens to Jesus? He is, he is led up from the waters of baptism by the Spirit, by God the Spirit, who had been poured out upon him in baptism into the wilderness, into an uninhabitable place. So don't, don't think lush Colorado forests. Think more like the landscape outside of El Paso. And, and nothing against El Paso, but it's an uninhabitable place. It's a place where there's nothing to eat and there's no shelter. That's what it means to be wild. Wild, not in the sense of a party, but wild in the sense of a place that wants to kill you. And Here, he is led by the spirit to be tempted, same word, by the evil one, by the devil. Again, same word. So consider all the incongruities here. This is my beloved son. Lead him out into the wilderness and and, and lead him out for what reason? Who, Who is involved here? Is God involved here? Is the evil one involved here? Is this a test meant to produce greater maturity and formation and strength and courage in life? Or is it a temptation to ruin Jesus? and to tear him apart from his father and to extinguish the spirit within him. You know how I like to answer this because it has to be both. It really does, especially if we're going to consider and understand evil as parasitic, which Brent also emphasized last week by talking about the difference between sexual love and then also pornography. Brent pointed out to you that there's a massive difference here because sexual love is a gift of God. It is actually a sacramental communication of God, giving us a slight taste of what it is to be loved by him in a committed relationship between a man and a woman in marriage, a slight taste of what it is to be loved by him. But pornography is evil. It's from the evil one. And it plays upon all of our evil impulses and desires. And it isn't real, not in the most literal sense. It Pornography and all evil can't exist without some good, something beautiful in order to corrupt. Evil has to have some sort of good. And, and that's, the, that's the failure that we make with so many things in our, in, our, in our society, that we cannot confuse the corruption with the good. But that's the dynamic here. That is the relationship between testing and temptation. One is meant for good. One is meant for our benefits from God, and the other is corruption, meant to steal, to kill, and to destroy that good. 
And so in any trial that you face, and some of you are facing trials right now, all of us do at some point, but some of you are facing significant trials. Understand this, in it, God intends to use it in and through this trial to form you and to shape you and to change you for good and to further his redemption and to deepen his grace in your lives. And at the same time, the evil one and the evil of this world and even your sinful desires and the sinful and fallen desires of everyone all around you, they're waiting there lurking in the shadows of what God is doing, waiting to pounce and to exploit and to misuse what God intends to bend for your good. So whatever it may be, marital struggles, despondent children, sad children, a special need diagnosis with a child, dissatisfaction at work, boredom at work, a betrayal, a rejection. Maybe you're single and want to be married. Maybe you're married and you want a child. Maybe you're widowed. Maybe you're you're struggling financially. So many are. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's slander. Maybe it's just mean girls in middle school, whatever it is. Imagine it as a lump of clay and God is a potter who seeks to form it into something new, good, and beautiful in you, but the evil one seeks to snatch that away and to bend it and to twist it and disfigure it. That is Matthew 4. And that is our lives. That is our world. That is your life right now. Which leads us to point two, and that is an honest assessment, an honest assessment of our lives in this world And if we are to hold together the possibility of both being tested unto life and tempted unto death in the same scenarios, in the same situations, then we can see how these these final lines, it's two parts, truly inform one another. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And please know that in this, we're not asking not to be led into any trial or difficulty. It's not possible. It's not possible in this world. The Lord works with this world as it is and trials, difficulties come inevitably. So he's not directing us. Jesus is not directing us to pray that. He's also not directing us to pray to never be tested, meaning never be put by God through a hardship or a difficulty in which and through which our faith grows and our understanding of him deepens and we become wiser and our hearts become softer and his grace sinks deeper into our hearts. He's, he's not directing us to pray that, to not have our hearts and our lives smelted. Remember that analogy I used several weeks ago from First Peter? It's the process by which gold is purified. Remember me talking to you about that? It's there in First Peter and it's how gold gets purified. It's purified through a, through a trial, through a furnace in which gold is put into a furnace. The furnace is heated up. Gold begins to liquefy. All of the impurities rise to the surface and it gets skimmed off. And then they do it again and they do it again. And Peter says, that's the Christian life. And friends, that also is what it means to be tested by God. Being tested by God and transformed by God biblically are almost synonymous. They are certainly inextricable. And so Jesus doesn't direct us to, not be, to, not, to pray to not be tested. What he does direct us to pray is to be delivered, to be delivered from evil. The word deliver, it's a very strong word. It could be translated snatch or pluck, or like you're plucking something out of a net or or grab. So grab us, tear us, tear us away, tear us apart from the influence of evil that's inevitably present in any situation. In other words, when I go into the wilderness to be so when I go out there, be so powerfully present to me and work so strongly in my life that I won't be devoured. In other words, don't let the test become a trap 
into which I fall. And if that's the way that we're supposed to read it, and I think it is, you know what that means? You know what that really tells us? It, it concedes an extraordinary weakness that we possess. It is a concession, an honest concession, an admittance that alone in this world, away from God, apart from God, resisting him, denying him, we're done. We, we are cooked. We will be devoured by the evil of this world left to ourselves. It is an acknowledgement that evil is real and it's an acknowledgement of how weak we are before it. And I read a sermon this week and in it, the pastor told about an interview with a prisoner that he had heard years and years before, but it always stuck with him. And the man, this prisoner, he was in prison for life because he had been driving too fast one night down a, a dark road, winding road, and maybe he had been drinking but he ran over a little boy and he fled the scene and the little boy died. And had he stayed and had he helped immediately called for 911, the boy might have lived. The medical examiner testified as much. And, and so he, he left and he was justly prosecuted for his crime. In the interview, he told the reporter that he had been thinking a lot about why he had done that, why he had made that decision that night and given into the temptation to leave. And he told her about a time when he was a little boy and the, his father had this watch that he kept in his bedside drawer, bedside table drawer. And it was a, a family heirloom, a beautiful watch. And one day he, he got it out and he pulled it out of the handkerchief. He just wanted to see it, but he dropped it and he broke it. And then he wrapped it back up in the handkerchief and put it back in the drawer. And then when his father found it, he gathered all the family, all the children together and said, how did this happen? Who did this? And the prisoner, who was a little boy then, didn't say a word. He denied knowing anything about it. And he told the reporter that from then on, anytime he got into a difficult situation in which he was at fault or he was in the wrong or he was going to look bad, he wouldn't admit the truth and he wouldn't take responsibility. And he said to the reporter, I failed that first test as a little boy. And then so many other little tests after that. I did the same until finally, when the big test of my life came on that night, driving too fast down that winding narrow road, I did what I'd always done. And I gave into that temptation to leave and to lie and to hide. And friends, that is what's happening here in this final line. Jesus knows that that is our world. It's evidence that he knows that this is what our life will be like in this world, full of trials like this, trials that God can use and he will use for our good and for our transformation. But alone and distant from him, left to ourselves and our sin and our brokenness, we will fail. We'll fail these tests. We have to be delivered from evil. We cannot escape it. We cannot endure it left to ourselves. We cannot pretend it's not real. We can't dress it up in whatever it is and, and call it good and pretend that it's not doing harm to us and to others. So whether or not we read the last line here as the evil one, meaning the devil, or we read it as an evil person or an evil influenced person or people who are seeking to do us and others harm, or whether we read it as evil in general, the point is we can't stand alone before it. The last line is a prayer for help, for help, that, that these tests will be nothing more than that. It won't become a temptation into which I fall. So of course it's the last line. Of course it is. It's honest, and Jesus is being honest and trying to wake us up. 
in order for us to believe this, and in order for this to sink in, we especially need point three, three, an essential story. Essential for us to see ourselves in the world for what it is and our desperate need of, of God and his grace. So this final line here, it's not just a plea for help. It is also a prayer for courage, a plea from help from God, but a prayer for courage for us. So back to C.S. Lewis for just a second and to the Screwtape letters. In chapter 29 of Screwtape, it's a fascinating chapter. It's a chapter that is most especially about courage. What's happening is that the Germans in World War II are beginning to bomb London and the target human lives in London. And so Screwtape writes this to Wormwood in order to advise him about how to tempt his target person in the midst of the bombing. He says this, are we to aim at cowardice or at courage with consequent pride or at hatred of the Germans? He says, this is a ticklish business. We have made men proud of most vices, but not cowardice. Whenever we have almost succeeded in doing this, the enemy, God, permits a war or an earthquake or some other calamity. And at once courage becomes so obviously lovely and important, even human eyes see and all of our work is done. In fact, in the last war, World War I, thousands of humans by discovering their own cowardice, discovered the whole moral world for the first time. In peace, we can make many ignore good and evil entirely. That is happening so often in our world, in our world of safety and comfort and security. He goes on, in danger, the issue is forced upon them in a guise to which we cannot even blind them. This indeed is probably one of the enemies, God's motives for creating a dangerous world, a world in which moral issues really come to the point. He sees as well as you do that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. A chastity or honesty or mercy, which yields, which yields to danger, will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful until it became risky. Keeping him, your target human, feeling that he has something other than the enemy, other than God, and the courage that God supplies to fall back on, that is the goal. And that's, that's the point here, the final point, that we have nothing else to fall back on other than God and the courage that he provides. In fact, that is temptation. That's temptation in any and all forms, to fall back onto something else in times of trial other than God whether it be your wealth or your comfort or your connections or some distraction, alcohol partying, vacationing, entertainment, a hobby, sports, kids sports, your work, whatever. Anything that you think or you feel or you even say, well, if I give in here to this, it's okay because I still will have this. If I give into this affair and I have this affair and I cheat on my wife or my husband, at least I still have my job and I still have my success and I still have my money. Or if I lose my temper and I belittle this employee or this coworker, if I just rake them over the coals. Yeah, I may not have the reputation I once had with my coworkers, but at least I'm still successful. And at least my, my family doesn't know. And at least they still think I'm a decent person. Or if I don't intercede here and lovingly confront my friend, about what they're facing, about their drinking or, or about their absence at home or about their rudeness or their disrespect to their spouse 
or about their permissiveness with their children. If I don't tell them what they truly need to hear, at least they'll still like me. At least I'll still have a relationship. It might be a shallow relationship. It might be surface level, but at least I'll still have them as a quote unquote friend. At least I have that to fall back on. That is always temptation. It's always to fall back on something other than God and to grasp something other than him. And the lie is that you think you're grasping it, whatever it may be you're falling back on, but really it is grasping you. And our Old Testament reading, as much as anything, shows us this. It is an essential story. It's an essential story for what it is to pray this last line of the Lord's Prayer and to go through life as a a Christian. It's about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love those names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. When Peter in our New Testament reading speaks about the fiery trials, he says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that you're going to go through. He's thinking about this passage. And at this point in the Old Testament, God's people are in exile. They're in slavery in Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar has passed a law that anytime a certain song is played, everyone has to sing and everyone has to dance. This music is played. They've all got to turn to this, to this idol and they've got to bow down and worship. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these Jewish men who have been appointed to very, very important positions in the government, they refuse. And the refusal is a furnace. And notice what they say in verse 17. They basically say, throw us in. Throw us in because our God is able to deliver us from this. But if not, but if not, he has his reasons and they're good reasons because he is good. So good that death with him in the furnace is better than life with you outside the furnace. So be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not obey you or your God. We will obey our God in the midst of the furnace. In other words, we have nothing else to fall back on. Nothing at all. And notice what God does. God joins them in the midst of the furnace. Three are thrown in, but four are seen walking unbound and around in the midst of the flames. And that I think is a picture of the Christian life. Earlier in 1 Peter, he says, live as free people meaning live unbound by the pressures and the temptations of life and and the foolish ways of this world, regardless of how strong they are, regardless of how hot they become. Because in Christ, you are like people walking unbound and unburnt by the flames of opposition and the evil in this world. That is who you are. And why is that who you are? Because even more so than with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God has joined you. He has joined us, God himself, Jesus, God, the son said to God, the father, almost the exact same thing that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego said to King Nebuchadnezzar. He said, father, let this cup pass from me. You can deliver me. You can deliver me. Let this cup of judgment, the consequence of everyone's sin pass from me. You can deliver me, but if not, I will love you and I will trust you and I will obey you. So not my will, but yours be done. And he said that before the furnace of the cross. And then he went in. He went into the furnace. He went up on the cross. He went into hell itself for you. And he was raised from that death. And not simply to forgive you. Yes, to forgive you. Of course, to forgive you through his death. But he was raised in order to be with you in whatever little furnace and whatever little trial it is that you face. 
in order that he might give himself, that he might give his very spirit. And not just his spirit in general. Yes, true of all Christians, but the measure of his spirit that you need and what you face. So if you believe in and follow after Jesus, then you can know that when you pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, he will be there and he will walk with you in your furnace because he already went into the great furnace for you. He will be with you in whatever it is that you face. And so don't be surprised. Peter says this, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that come upon you. So many people are, so many people are shocked. All of us to some extent are, and what do we always say? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? This is the world. And if we continue to be obsessed with that question, why is it happening to me? Then we still don't see the cross as the fundamental structure of the way that life must go in this world. And the cross is not yet the foundation of our life. So make it so. By listening to what Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. In other words, understand and accept that all your trials have to be are means by which he forms you and he changes you and he beautifies you. So cast all your anxieties on, you, on him. That's what he says. Cast them all because he cares for you. He cares so much for you, infinitely cares for you. And he stands with you in whatever you face. So resist your temptations, make them only tests by believing, obeying, and acting in courage in the midst of the forest furnace because Jesus will stand with you now and he will make you stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us the grace to believe in you and to follow after you and the courage to live as becomes followers of Jesus, as becomes the followers of the one who went into the furnace for us all for the redemption of the world. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.